What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Find out every Monday at 8 on Notes from an Artist. Bassist educator, author David C. Gross, and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an Artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. Every Monday at 8 on CygnusRadio.com. And check out previous episodes on our podcast. Notes from an artist.buzzsprout.com. Hi, this is David Gross, and along with co-host Tom Semioli, I want to welcome you to another Notes from an Artist radio show. Tonight, we are welcoming to our show Dave Swift. Dave has been for the past 30 years holding down the bottom for later with Jules Holland, which is a TV show that's broadcast on the BBC. He has played with countless musicians and singers like Ray Davies, Tom Jones, George Benson, Chaka Khan, and on and on and on. Also... Dave was our extra credit assist live on Zoom with Tom and I when we filmed our first Tips from the Top segment with Mr. Ron Carter. A great guy. Let's begin our conversation with Dave Swift. Hi, Tom. Hi, Dave. David, did you know that Dave Swift is the highest, is the most recognizable bass player in all of the UK? <laughs> I thought it was Sid Vicious. I don't know. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of similarities. I'm the most highly recognized bass player in my own hat. Well, there you go. And there's Lucy in the background. How are Lucy and Oscar doing? How are you? Hey, let's talk about your uh, your review. Let's talk about your uh, you, you doing the classic jazz singers, right? Yeah. There was it the legendary ladies of jazz. Yeah. The legendary and, ladies of jazz. Yeah, great. And playing stuff. ukulele as well. You're playing oh, ukulele. Yeah. I, you know, I was telling Dave about. Um, so, uh, Jake and the version of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody on the ukulele. Did you see that? Yeah, Lu- Lucy was way ahead of me on that. I- I've oh, not heard okay. of it until you mentioned, but she went, "Oh yeah, I know, I know him. He's great. He's cool." <laughs> yeah, she- he's she's very good at doing her research, way better than I am. Well, we're going to talk about that because we're going to talk about the history. Uh, you know, your knowledge. You know how bass players reference history, and yeah, you you know Lucy doing. I guess it's what Billy Holiday, Peggy Lee, Ella Fitzgerald. Carmen McRae, yeah. who, who's um, Lucy's particular favorite. Who else? Dinah Washington. Carmen McRae, Dinah Washington. Dinah Washington's my favorite. There you go. Yeah. All the old Mercury records. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the greats, of course, like Anitra Day. Yeah. Actually, you know, Lucy, you come and sit here. I'll go and do the dishes. Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. <laughs> right, I shall leave you to it. Enjoy. All right. We'll get to you. We'll get to you. See you later. There you go. David and I uh, want to do something on the wives of bass players. We definitely... It started with Rick Wills. <laughs> Is, are you thinking what, of a fundraiser or, or some counselling for yeah, them? Yeah, counselling would be good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but no, we did actually have a... a we've been talking to a lot of your peers. Uh, uh, Carmen Rojas, Rick Wills, um, Michael Manring. Um, Larry Grenadier, Chris so we, Thomas, which was hilarious. That was a good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've never actually met. I mean, I've I've worked with, I've I've done a couple of things with Elvis Costello, but I've never I've never met Bruce. We've, our paths have never crossed. But well, I must tell you, he he. Before we did the interview, he was sort of um, searching us to make sure that we actually were real. And so he goes, <laughs> uh, "Oh, you're the one with the coffee table bases, you know?" Because all my uh, I'll, I'll give you a show him that we um, and actually we did a feature on this, but David insists on these. You know, he's he's from Massive the massive six string basses okay. and pink strings and blue strings because I can. Yeah. 
Why not? Why not? And of course, you see my bass in the background here. It's one of those old four-string Fender basses, David. You know, yes, the... I, I've, I've, I've heard of them. I, they're vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the base of the proletariat, the working class base. <laughs> <laughs> what ended up happening uh, with with Bruce? We started sending him pictures of the bases this way with wine glasses and and, and such. <laughs> and I'll send you that. I'll I'll send David uh, Dave Swift. I will send you the uh, thing we did with uh, eating with your base and all our favorite bass players: Mike Viseglia, Paul Page. Yeah, yeah. So put uh, a few magazines over it. We yeah. did, yes. So, As uh, a matter yeah. of fact, Tom, I never told you, he sent me a picture of a coffee table and said, does this look familiar? You just need to put strings on it. Well, the thing is, uh, I mean, I'm glad the, the, the stigma isn't quite as bad with, uh, with the six-string, particularly six-string and boutique basses as it was back in the day. I remember coming to London and I turned up to London with the Ken Smith six-string quilted maple gold hardware. You know, I didn't get many gigs not on electric bass. I mean, I, I, was, I got loads of gigs on acoustic bass. Yeah. But as soon as I, you know, people just didn't want to see those kind of instruments, you know. Let's start off with the state of the instrument. And David, we know we, you know, David has gotten a lot of guff on the extended range. I wonder why the stigma associated with that instrument, because when you look at the electric bass, it was a groundbreaking instrument in the first place. It changed pop music, the, the course of pop music history. So you would think that bass players would always be on the forefront of innovation. And it's almost, to my ears, it's it's the right tool for the right job. In sure. terms of, you know. Well, also, if you go back, and, and you know, I'm a big fan of Anthony Jackson. You know, he's, yes. he's a real hero of mine in, in so many ways. And, and known as the inventor of the modern-day six-string bass. And he oh, said... The contrabass. Yeah, the contrabass. Exactly. And, and he said in, in an interview, I love reading Anthony's interviews there. There's, there's so much sort of stuff in there. But he said, you know, why, why wasn't the bass guitar six strings in the beginning? Because actually, the bass guitar, it, it's... You know, there's a whole thing about it's, it's a bass, not a guitar... Actually, it is a guitar. It's it's just the lowest pitched member of the guitar family. I've been playing double bass all my adult life. So right. if you put a double bass and a, and a bass guitar next to it and a guitar, you know, which which does the bass guitar resemble more? The exactly. acoustic double bass or, or an electric guitar, you know? So, so Anthony says, you know, why didn't it have six strings from day one? You know, and I guess from a marketing point of view, you know, Leo Fender was more used to dealing with guitars and also he saw an opportunity to make bass players' lives a lot right. easier by making a more portable instrument and one that didn't feed back and you could amplify. So, of course, you know, he, he put the four strings on it because he because they wanted to attract upright bass players. He wanted to sell a load of instruments. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think Anthony's got a great point. You know, why, why not give it six strings? Because it's still technically more part of the guitar family, I feel, personally. There's so much we could say about Anthony. As a matter of fact, you know Andy Robinson? Yes. He just did that book. Um, hold it. Yes. I, I, I haven't got a copy yet, but I've, I've heard lots about it, actually. I've got it somewhere. I did a review for um, Bass Musician Magazine on it. And it, it, it's, it's really a good job. Uh, the thing about Anthony, he's always right. <laughs> I, I'll tell you a funny story. A number of years ago... Um, I called him on um, New Year's Eve just to wish him a happy New Year and such. And we were talking. I said, Anthony, I'm, I'm, I, I feel I'm in a rut. And we started jawing on that. Then, then he goes to me, David, I'm going to be in the rut for the next 30 years. <laughs> I completely shut my mouth. You know, <laughs> no more complaints.
<laughs> you know, Anthony, because I've got Anthony Jackson Federa six string, his signature model, you know, and because yes. uh, I, I always wanted one because of. But you don't have a car. No. No, exactly. We won't have one at all. No, no. Far too expensive and too too awkward and annoying. <laughs> and I haven't got a coffee table either, um, as, as it goes. But but I remember, you know, going to the Federa workshop and and meeting him there. And I just and I've been following him for years and transcribing loads of his parts. But I was so kind of intimidated by him, and that wasn't him really just my own feelings on it you know but I just had that feeling that he was like one of these um sort of gurus uh, you know that uh, live at the top of some Himalayan mountain and and you get to visit him and you can only ask him questions you know and they can't be how are you today what do you think of the weather you've got to pick something with some real gravitas and some depth to it you know so because you know i think he's that kind of guy he's, he's a great intellectual he's very academic studious you know so I, I think we had a brief conversation about james jameson i think because i knew that if i spoke about james that that would be a good yeah. and i said you know i'm a fan i've done loads of transcriptions as well you know but um but yeah you know i had to have one of those bases and i've got some lovely photographs of anthony because if you get one of those he sets it up personally he does all right. the intonation he does the trust rod he does everything on it and i've got people pictures of him actually doing that in the Federal workshop and of course he signs the back of it as well you know so, so that's quite pride of place well you're right about the Himalayan mountain thing and I'll tell you why <laughs> back when we were all kids you know um, I say when I was having a hamster um, running my amplifier because I always played <laughs> passive this drummer named Casey Conrad had been in a band with um, this kid at the time mm. Anthony Jackson 15 year old kid who was locked up in his room in Brooklyn. Right. So a couple of years before I met him, essentially had heard about him, and the Himalayan mountain is not too far off. Right. Uh, <laughs> really, somewhere, I have a picture of me with one of my Federas. They were brilliant instruments. I remember they, they built me a, a short-scale one, okay. and that didn't last. And it's Federas. I have a Fedora. Well, not yeah. quite a Fedora. <laughs> I'm sure many people have got them mixed up. <laughs> okay, so if there's no wearing way, a bass on my head, <laughs> you can see that was a short scale six string with a P bass pickup. Oh wow! Wait a minute, a wait a minute, David, David, pull that picture. What are the trousers there? What do you got going on there? Oh, uh, that's Willie wear. You know, I was oh, okay. always in the, in the height of fashion. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a kilt. It looks was, like a kilt. This yeah. is pre spandex, gentlemen. <laughs> and remember, spandex is the most forgiving of fabrics. <laughs> uh, here this is uh i guess it was an imperial and yeah. of course Vinny had me uh do a signature and he um it's hard to see yeah it really yeah, is yeah, I can see, yeah. but but there's a uh a signature in abalone abalone uh, <laughs> but, yeah, anthony's an interest yeah he's an interesting guy i've met him and in fact um I think that Lucy and I were with him when, when he had a stroke. Like, we, we were with him literally minutes before it happened because he was with in London playing with Hiromi at the Jazz Cafe. And Lucy and I were chatting with him afterwards, actually on stage. We, we climbed up, he called us up there. And, we and he asked about the bass. He said, how is it going? You still enjoying it? All that kind of thing. And then, and then Lucy and I left. And then the following day, I was back on tour with Jules Holland. And I got a phone call from Anthony's tour, the tour manager, who I knew and I'd, I'd met that night. And he sort of said, Anthony's in hospital. You know, he's had this uh, sort of stroke or something like that. And he said, and he was asking me how Anthony was after the show. 
he said, how did he sound to you? And I sort of said, well, you know, Anthony, I said, he's very deliberate. You know, he doesn't rush things. You know, he, he, he seemed to me as, as he always was. And I think they were just trying to ascertain, did he have like a, a mini stroke during the gig? Did it happen while we were chatting with him? You know, I hope he wasn't suggesting I was the cause of it, you know, but uh, <laughs> bless him, you know. But uh, no, no, he, he, was, he was fine. But I, I believe what happened is that, you know, when he left the club, I think uh, Simon Phillips was on drums. They left together. Mm-hmm. And I think he, Anthony fell outside the venue. And I think that's when he, when something happened, you know. So it was after we saw him, but it was only like a few minutes Mm-hmm. Afterward, you know. So yes, yeah, so the the yeah, the tour manager would call me up because he was just trying to ascertain when it when it actually happened. You know, but I was quite shocked to hear he was in the hospital. But so glad that he that he was okay. You know, but I've seen him play with Hiromi a few times. But um, you know, but I love the stuff he did. Obviously with Shaka Khan, I love the mm-hmm. stuff he did with Steve Khan. No relation, of course. Uh, um, the OJ's, uh, the Garland Jeffries. I mean, come on. Yeah, the whole sort of gamble and huff thing, you know, and. Uh, you know, for the love of money, you know, that classic line. I mean, it's, it's so amazing wherever you kind of go and you hear that. And I, I could be in a toy shop with Oscar, you know, or a clothes shop with Lucy. And, yeah. you, and you can hear Anthony kind of with the pick and the phaser, you know, and I'm thinking, wow. That was For the Love of Money, the OJs, with the great Anthony Jackson on bass. Let's get back to talking to Dave Swift. This is Notes from an Artist, on CygnusRadio.com. And it's so nice to know he won that lawsuit. You know? He's actually getting paid for it. That that is is wonderful. Well, yeah, because it is so unusual for for someone to get a writing credit for a a part. They did, but of course, it's the the opening of the song. It's the the hook. Yeah, it's, it's it's everything. About everyone it. knows it before they hear anything else, you know. So, uh, but yeah, I, I I love him. I think he's uh, you know he's he's amazing. That is an interesting perspective, and I I can now kind of see that that the sixth string is really the more pure of the instrument, not the four string, because as you mentioned, as you say, as you observe, it's a guitar. It is a guitar. It's the that's Anthony. Anthony, Anthony refers to himself as a bass guitarist. And he tells his students, you are bass guitarist. So really, the true electric bass is the sixth string, not the four string. Are you prepared to say that in a court of law, Jim? (laughs) (laughs) I'll happily say it. But of course, then you could argue, you know, because I've got a couple of seven string basses. I've actually got three, three seven strings. What is this? What is the, uh, what are the strings? Seven? What have you got? What's the? Yeah, so basically, it's it's a six string, you know, with the low low B, but it's got a high F. Oh, okay. Wow. uh, On the top. But I guess, you know, some people you know have six string basses that, that begins with a low e and then does that and some people have them tuned like a guitar i mean for me it's got to be all fourths i mean interestingly enough i mean i play guitar you know i've been playing more guitar recently and over the years the guitars always thwarted me my two older brothers played it when i was a kid right. and it's probably the first instrument that i ever really picked up at home to right. and as a kid those strings used to kill my fingers you know, uh, you know, those like acoustic guitar strings. And so, but, but years later, after I became a bassist and I tried to play guitar, I just could never get over that third tune. Yeah, together. sure. It just yeah. drove me nuts, the G to the B, you know. And so I just kept putting it off and I'd come back and say, no, I can do this. And then eventually I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to tune the two top strings up a semitone. You know, so B goes to C, E goes to an F, all fours. But then I thought to myself, yeah, but this is going to affect stuff that I want to do in it. And then I started to Google guitar in fours. And it's it's quite a common thing. You know, yeah. a, a lot more players do it than I thought. I mean, Stanley Jordan has always done it. 
Well, yeah. right. Alan Holdsworth, you know, famously said, you know, the late great guitarist, you know, he sort of said if he could start over again on guitar, 100% he would tune in fourths. Yeah. You know, because it just makes everything sort of even, whatever shape you use, it's the same on every group. Right, it's symmetrical. Yeah, it's very... Uh, yeah, so as soon as I did that on guitar, I'm thinking, oh my God, I can play this. It makes sense now. And, and you know, you have to make adjustments. There's certain types of music that you can't play on. You know, you can't do lots of open chords. There's not much... There's not, it's not going to be very helpful around the campfire to playing in fours. But the majority of the guys that do it are actually jazz and fusion guys. And, yeah. and I did it so I could play some jazz on it myself you know so it's kind of like a high-pitched bass yeah yeah yeah, i see what you're saying there what i've done with my low b's i've added um d tuners so i go down to a low a it's much easier if you're constipated Uh, (laughs) it helps (laughs) it it, it helps i just wanted to go back one thing uh, about anthony that was great for me an early bass player interview he talked about his uh love of the messian organ sure so i spent a long time listening to that stuff and to be perfectly honest you know there's a lot of bass playing (laughs) (laughs) down there you know i did the same thing whatever he whatever he recommended i I listened to and i've got all of that stuff listened to a lot of it it's not a great first date background music is it (laughs) you know If you're trying to woo a lady, you know, you still probably want to put on Teddy Pendergrass or something. I mean, after 30 years, I certainly wouldn't do that with my wife, even now. But yes, there there is that Teddy Pendergrass thing. Although actually, it's more Barry White. Barry White. Or whatever. Who I actually worked with. I actually worked with Barry. Well, I, did a t- I did a TV show with him in the mid-90s. And in fact, interestingly enough, I mean, I've been with Jules 30 years now. This very year is my 30th anniversary. It's wow. also my 40th anniversary of being a pro bass player. And, you know, it, when I started out in the late 70s, throughout the 80s, of course, you had to do loads of slap stuff because it was what was expected. It was what it was called for. It was that era. Mm. But then by the time I got to London, that was slowly on the wane and I was playing jazz on upright bass. So, so the slap thing to me, and I just thought to myself, you know what, I, I can live without it, you know, and, and I, I love certain players doing it, big Marcus fan with it, you know, but I could see the times are changing and I'm thinking, you know, what's the point in sort of spending a lot of time on a technique that I'm probably never going to get called for? Well, that's what it seemed like in the industry. But anyway, we did this TV show in the mid-90s and Barry Wright, we were the house band. It wasn't Jules's mm-hmm. show, it was a different one and every week was a different guest. We had Shaka Khan on, Roger Daltrey, Cher, and Barry came on. And uh, he, we did two songs with him, and one of them had a tiny little bit of slap on it, you know. And I hadn't done it for a few years. I'm thinking, well, I, I can do this. I've still got some chops left, you know. And I think it's the only, and it's on YouTube somewhere, and I think it's, the song's called Show Yo Rights, it's called. And I think it's the only footage you'll ever see or hear me playing, like, sort of slap. And you know what? It's the only time I've been called to do it in 30 years. Mark now, King hasn't told you for his, to call you for technique lessons? <laughs> well, do, do you know what? I, I just thought to myself, it's like, it's not that I'm completely against it, but it was just interesting that considering that I'm playing in, in like, you know, more uh, commercial music industry, I'm playing, I mean, I do play a lot of jazz, but I'm playing with a lot of pop artists, you know, like Adele and Ed Sheeran and Amy Winehouse, those guys. And I've, no one ever requested any slap stuff in, in 30 years, you know. So 
I'm kind of quite glad that I made that decision to leave that technique behind. And like I said, you know, there's some players I still love watching doing it, but I just think for me, there's there's many other things that I'd rather be worth than than a technique that I might get called once in six months. You know, and and for that reason, there's guys that specialize in that. But it's still interesting in 30 years of, of being a TV and radio house show bassist. There's only been one song where I've had to do it. Just- yeah, I don't think many six-string players do play slap. It's and not I- really set up for that, really. I mean, well, sure it is. It's, you think if, so? if you have a Federa or something like I have where the string spacing, a jazz or a P bass spacing, yeah. okay, okay, you can do it, but I think you're absolutely right. You get to a certain, well, look, you get to a certain point in rock and roll, and then all of a sudden you hear Bitches Brew or something like that, and all of a sudden, oh, I got to learn a lot more. Then all of a sudden, the slap technique comes in. Oh, I got to learn that. Put that in the back burner because there's so much more I've got to learn. And I don't mean this in the negative, the real stuff. Yeah. Of how, to, how to actually do bass lines, how to um, solo. How many times in the middle of a solo are you going to go, oh, I think I'm going to slap this section. <laughs> I mean, I have to admit, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know how important it is to be able to sort of do this well, because like I said, I, I don't do a lot of freelance things. And actually my freelance stuff outside of Jules is all, it's all jazz. It's all on upright bass, you know, so I don't really do, you know, those function things, you know, I, I don't do like cruise ships, which I did when I was a teenager or whatever. So okay. I don't want to say to any younger players, you know, don't, don't bother with this thing because just because, just because I've never been asked to do it or don't get called to do it doesn't yeah. mean... It's not needed, but I do wonder how, I guess what it is as well, it's great for trade shows, isn't it? Because it's, it's the one thing that's visually and sonically something that will draw a crowd. You know, because it's very, very kind of flash to watch, as opposed yeah. to just someone sitting there just playing. But I just, I still wonder how used it is in sort of, in, in the industry. You know, I, I, I don't know. On Jules' TV show, which I've been doing for like almost 30 years, I, I think I've probably seen like four bass players that have done it in like all that time. So the music that I'm hearing and seeing, there, there isn't that call for it. But, you know, if, if I see a video online, like on the Instagram, whatever, and if the opening thing is, is, is a guy with his hand like this ready to go, you turn it off. I, I just can't. Well, you know, it's interesting. I find that the slap passages, which are the best, are the ones that are probably most simple. What comes to mind is David Hungate on um, Remember Lowdown, Boz Skaggs, where he just thumps on the octave. Oh, do you know what? I've just realized that's the other time I got to do it with Boz Skaggs. Okay, well, there you go. He came, he came on Jules' show and we played with him. So thank you for reminding me. Barry White and Boz Skaggs are the only two artists in 30 years. And the I- irony of, of that is David Hungate actually double-tracked that. That was not done... He did the E thump and then he did the high E thump separately. You know, if you use a medium to light gauge string or even a tape wound, which I love the labella tapes, you can actually get the slap sound by just plucking the string a little bit harder. I mean, you're not going to be speedy Marcus Miller, but you can actually do that. And if you pluck at the base of the neck, you can also get a pataka taka taka. You don't have to go thumb happy because. What happens when you use your thumb? I find that the bottom drop. Yeah. But it is. I'm happy. I like that. There's a book involved. <laughs> That's my what? new book. Yeah. I mean, I do often wonder if, um, you know, if and when I get called on Jules's show, if someone finally does present me a song I have to play and it is full on slap bass thing, you know, I often wonder what I would do. I mean, 
I'd like to think I would have a go at getting some chops back, even though I literally haven't done it for decades, you know. But it's still, I still can't imagine it happening. I can't imagine anyone coming onto Jules's show, TV or radio, and asking me to do it because it just hasn't happened yeah. in all this time. But, but, you know, there's a great quote. I think uh, there's a book called, um, is it The Bassist Handbook? Mm-hmm. And I think it's by Greg Mutter. Okay. Is, you know, and he says something, and he's talking about different kind of players, like amateur players, semi-pros, and pro players. And I think he said something to the effect that um, it's not an exact quote, forgive me, but he sort of said, you know, even if pro players aren't always prepared for every eventuality, the sign of a true pro is the fact they will do everything in their power to. So yeah, they're, they're not always ready for every eventuality, but they'll prepare for it. You know, if they right. if they've got enough time, they'll do some research, they'll do some practice. You know, they'll they'll apply themselves to it. You know, the sign of a, a true a true pro. You know, he, he might not. So it would be the same with me. If next week Jules said, okay, we need to do this, and I'd be thinking, okay, I'm doing it for a while, but man alive would i spend the next week working away on this you know this bizarre gig once and it was for a friend of mine and it, the, the, the gig was chapman stick and classical guitar now at the time i'd owned a couple of sticks but i'd never really fooled i just fooled around with them i didn't i wasn't the proper stick player and i hadn't played guitar at that point and i said to my friend he was like a touring show and he got them to sort of write all the parts mostly stick one song on guitar and he said i need you to debt for me and i said are you kidding me you know I, I, I said i haven't i don't own a stick i haven't owned one for years i haven't played one for years he said but you used to play one right i said kind of you know and he said listen he said and I said, look, there's other guys out there that are better stick players. They, they can't read as well as you. Because the charts were really heavy duty, like uh, double stave, yeah, piano sure. parts, you know. And I kept saying to myself, listen, and, and for me to turn down the work and to turn down a challenge is very unusual because I'm, I'm all for rising to the occasion. But even I thought to myself, my God, you know, you might as well be asking me to play a harp or like, you know, just something, a bassoon or something like yeah. that, you know. But anyway, he kept on at me, he said, you've got to do because you're the only one that can read the parts and you've owned a stick and you've, you're kind of familiar. Anyway, against my better judgment, I said yes, and he sent me the charts, and I looked at these parts were like terrifying because he was a proper stick player, guitarist, right. bass player, you know. And I'm looking at this thinking, I've almost got to start from scratch with this thing, and especially with guitar because at the time I didn't play it. And that's what I did for like two weeks or a week. I locked myself in the room, like 10 hours a day, you know, and I just worked out these charts, put fingering, fingerings all over it. And I did the show. I actually did it. And um, and it's quite funny because some of the guys in the band said, well, you did, uh, <laughs> you did a better shop, better job than the other guy, you know. I hope <laughs> you didn't hear this. I hope you didn't hear this. But yeah, but it was that thing that Greg Mooter said about sort of, even if I wasn't ready for it immediately, because I had some time, I I put I put the time in, I put the effort in there. And it was a monumental effort. It was because he was like, literally like learning a new instrument because I hadn't played a stick properly ever. And I, I hadn't owned one for like eight years. And they're tricky to play anyway, but then to play these kind of charts, you know, but, um, but yeah, I guess I had a, some a lot of grit and tenacity back then, you know. It's interesting you said that because I was playing with Ian McDonald after he left Foreigner uh-huh. and he was getting back to his sort of King Crimson-y kind of roots. Nice. I went to Manny's and bought a stick. And first part, I then had to buy a stool so I could sit and practice. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> I got one of the top stick players 
to give me instruction. And I'm getting frustrated and frustrated. Mm-hmm. I walked down 48th Street at Alex Music. Tom, you remember Alex Music? I remember, I've spent many of a shekel at Alex Music. <laughs> the number seven Federa six-string bass uh-huh. was in the window. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, <laughs> sold the stick, bought the bass, and started doing the two-handed thing on a six-string bass. So obviously my question were you playing a six-string bass at that time? And did you think somewhere maybe you could adapt? I think, well, the first time I ever got a stick was I was working on the cruise ships and we were in San Francisco and I bought one from a shop, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did actually visit Emmett Chapman years later. I went to his his home when I got a second one. But um, yeah, I, I think I was playing six-string at the time. But the main reason why I got a stick, it was very, very specific. And it was... You know, my first instrument is actually trombone. I started off on school and then a year later took up bass guitar and then a couple of weeks later took up acoustic bass. So th- those are my key three instruments. But I never played a, a chordal instrument. My knowledge of music was through those those three instruments, you know, just, just playing lines and melodies, whatever. So, you know, by the time I moved to London, my knowledge of, of harmony wasn't great. It was very, very fundamental. And I have tried the piano. In fact, one of the people I studied with when I first moved to London was a very amazing American double bass player, jazz player called Michael Moore. Oh, sure, sure. You know, uh, Michael's last gig was playing with Brubeck. Right. You know, but I mean, you know, he, he was unbelievable. He just happened to be living in the UK at the time. He was giving lessons. So I went to him for some, because he's an amazing bow player. So I went for him for some arco lessons, but also improvisation as well. But one of the first things he did when he when I went to his house, was I said, do you play piano? I said, not really. I said, you know, I can, I know where the notes are and I kind of know a little bit about chords. And he's, before we even touched the bass, he said, get on the, get on the keyboard, the little tiny Casio keyboard he had. And he started to give me piano lessons. Before we did it, he said, because believe you me, he said, this will open things up so much, you know. And that's the reason why I, I got a stick prior to that, because I'd always wanted to play some piano, but I just didn't ever bond with it. So the stick for me was an instrument to learn harmony on. I didn't buy it. I mean, yeah, I'd seen Tony Levin with one. Of course, we all, we all, I predominantly got it to learn uh, harmony with whereas I would, still would have been better off with a keyboard because uh, of yeah. its uniformity you know but that that was why I got one in the first place you know but yeah I never fully fully bonded with it so for that reason I never got into the the two-handed thing on on bass I mean I, I like most people I fooled around it but I think with me my job has always been to you know to play songs and stuff you know to play the the fundamentals opposed to mm-hmm. I mean some people have criticized me they've seen me on Jules's show and they say Dave if I was you man I'd be I wouldn't just be standing I'd be putting my foot on the monitor I'd be I'd be playing really flash flamboyant things you know and I said and you'd be fired <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. I sort of said it's a, it's a hell of a way to hand your notice in, you know. So um, so for me, you know, I, I've the fundamentals are always the, the key thing for, for me, you know. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because at the Berklee College of Music, when I went there, everyone, it was mandatory that you took piano one and yeah. two. Right. Same at Miami. Had, yeah. Even drummers. And it, 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 it was kind of funny because... Especially drummers. Well, well some people say the piano is a, percu- a percussion instrument anyway. Yeah, sure, well, you can argue that. Yeah. After they were playing on it in the, the, some of the practice, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Uh, 
there's a story and I never got, you know, I've never asked Keith Jarrett. I'd, I'd love to interview Keith Jarrett and find out that he once destroyed a piano in a piano room at the Berkeley Center uh, because essentially it was so dreadfully out of tune right. that he, he just couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> I'd like to find out if that's a true story or just an... What, so he, he actually attacked the piano in frustration, do you mean? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because, wow. you know, over here, we, we've got, um, you know, there's a jazz pianist called Jamie Cullen. Uh, yes, yeah, here. sure, yeah. And we know Jamie, we've worked with him a lot. But when he first came on the scene, you know, his thing was was very much playing percussion on the piano. And I literally... Jerry Lewis, like, yeah. He'd stand up and he'd be sort of drumming on it and standing on it, you know. Yeah, I, I just dread to think the state of those things at the end of it, you know, because they probably looked... But, but it was done with a different reason. It was done affectionately, but still... in an And then contrary to that, you know, you think about all the uh, jazz clubs in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s, and those pianos were notoriously out of tune. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Day one, really. Yeah, and, and that drives me crazy, you know. I get some of my... The whole tuning thing, because... I don't think I have perfect pitch, but um, but you know, I, I the tuning thing, I, I can hear it when it's when something's out of tune. And when I get students come and immediately they want to play for me, and they just start and they just and I, they they don't even tune up. And I'm just thinking, that's the first thing you should do. And they're playing out of tune. I'm thinking, wow, that that's going to mess your ear up further down the line. You know, if you're just so used to taking your bass out and the the, the machine heads have been twisted, that's right, and, you play, and you're not even aware of it. That's the scary thing. You know, give them a fretless. Yeah, exactly. Um, you don't have to tune those. Well, I think for me as well, it's interesting because you know, being a trombonist first and foremost, and then taking up double bass. You know, I kind of think, man, your your ears have to be so spot on with those things. That was Sir Tom Jones doing Flip Flop Fly with Jules Holland and his orchestra, Dave Swift on bass. I mean, come on, how lucky could Dave Swift be? He's playing with Tom Jones. How cool is that? This is Notes from an Artist at CygnusRadio.com. You know, and people <laughs> tell me about, about playing upright, and I said, well, it's the same with trombone. I said, it's, it's ears, muscle memory, and repetition. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. Because I, I don't use any markers on... Uh, on upright, I, I just find them when I've had uh, stick bases that have had them on there, they just drives me nuts. I find them more of a distraction than, than a help, you know. So I'd rather, yeah, yeah. Well, Gary um, Willis was over my house one day, and I'm also a proponent of clean, no, no lines on the fretless. And he was always to make the point, I said, when you go up high, there is no way that the fret marker is anywhere near where the actual note is. Right. It's impossible. And the neck expands and contracts anyway, so <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's really a, a hindrance to have lines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even a fretted bass is not <laughs> right all the way up and down. You know, so... And, uh, yeah, and yeah, for me, it's just, it was the look of it as well. I, I, you know, so all my fretless basses are all completely plain. Yeah. I mean, dots on the side are, are, are very useful because... I mean, obviously, if you look at an acoustic bass, the actual the, the neck before it hits the body is, is relatively short. It's it's a right. very short space, you know. Whereas, obviously, with the bass guitar, it's it's a lot longer, so there's more room for error. On right. That. Yeah. And with upright, you've got the heel, you know, you've got the shoulders, you've got certain points that help you. The mark, yeah. Whereas on a, on a bass guitar, the neck is, you know, so so dots on the side, I'm all for. But the front, I, I don't think, I, the worst ones are when you get a fretless, where the fret, the, the, the lines are where the fret was, but then they've put a dot, middle of it, where, 
<laughs> it's just carnage. I just can't even. I don't even want to. And, and, and then the dot on the side will probably be somewhere else. I'm saying, oh, no, no, no. Well, you, I, I've got a longer scale upright. Uh, it, I don't know. It's still a hell of a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's be honest. You know, upright basses, particularly acoustic double basses, they're. They're not for the faint-hearted. And here's what no. makes me laugh. There's, there's this kind of... Well, I say laugh. I'm not being unsympathetic. But the amount of kind of bass guitarists that, I, that I've known, whether they're students or whether they're pro players, that, that never, ever played upright before. They were lifelong bass guitarists. And they just get to a point and they realise they're missing out on, on a lot of work here. I mean, I, I played them both from the time I was 15. So right. I, I was always a doubler. But it's the ones that did it years later. And, and it's the ones that just think, you know, this is four strings, EADG, it's a bass, you play bass lines on it, you know, and it's almost like that's it. That's the qualifications for it, you know. And then, of course, a month later, their fingers are bloodied stumps. Yeah. They can't work out yeah. why they can't play in tune. Cracking open, you know, the bridge has fallen. And I'm saying, welcome to my world, you know. It's like, <laughs> it really just not for the faint-hearted, you know. That, that's, a, that's a dedicated... But Dave, there's something else about uh, an upright that I believe all bass players should even just take a, a quick shot at. It's that the open strings are your friends. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and to an electric player, it may be something they think about. <laughs> yes. To a, an upright player, they oh, yeah. really are such a helpful thing. It, it, oh, it, absolutely. It really, my bass goes back to, uh, I guess it's 1936. It was made in Czechoslovakia. It has such a Big sound, but at the same time, that because the fingerboard is longer, it's a bugger. But it, <laughs> it, it's so much fun to play. Sure, it, sure. it really is. It's a wonderful instrument. But I wanted to ask you something about your trombone stuff. Do you know all the trombone jokes? Um, I, I know a few. Do you, you got know, know when when we? Do you remember beepers? You know they were the yeah. um. Right? Page, yeah. So there's a... There's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where this is going, but do it. Yeah. <laughs> You're indulging him. Trombonist. Is, is, is it the height of optimism? That's it. That's it. Go on. And... David, <laughs> tell the joke for the listeners, please. Yes, exactly. Okay, so what do you call a trombonist with a beeper? Or now we can call it a cell phone, an optimist. <laughs> How do you know there's a trombonist at your front door? Oh. The Domino's truck is right there. <laughs> and the follow-up to that I is... I heard that one. How does a trombonist make his car more aerodynamic? How? He takes off the Domino's sign. Uh... <laughs> All right. Uh, David, I, I just got word our show has been canceled, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, the base show is canceled. Now we'll do a comedy hour. Yeah. We've, well, we've lost the pizza endorsements. Um, well, you know, David, what, one of the uh, words you mentioned was preparation. And when we spoke in London in 2019, I was just, you went into how much you prepare for shows and, and working with different artists. And preparation also means education. And that is one of David and I's uh, pet peeves uh, or lack thereof. We spoke with Denny Sywell. Was it yesterday, uh, David, or <laughs> the day before? And he said, uh, you know, if you can't read music, you're not a musician. We spoke with Neil Jason a few weeks ago 
And Neil was opinion, if you can't read fly poop on a music staff, stay out of the studio. <laughs> and we try to impart to our listeners, and, and David, of course, uh, through his books, the, the power of getting a formal education in music. I mean, uh, now, of course, with YouTube, you can get uh, all sorts of tutorials, many which are inaccurate. David, we can talk about the horrors of tablature. And wow. how tablature to my to my eyes and ears and, and brain is harder to read than music notation. I, I totally agree. You know, and um, we kind of figure that with the electric bass, because it was born of the rock era, when you can play three chords and be in a band, that music education for bass is kind of lacking. And it was it, it even took a while before bass electric bass books came into existence. But it seems like uh, again now with digital media especially youtube people want to take the fast track to learning the electric bass when really like any other instrument it, it's a journey it's a lifelong endeavor yeah. to learn to play and there's and there's so many different avenues as you said about doing it there isn't just one one strict way i mean when i started out like i said i had uh, classical trombone lessons at school right. and interestingly enough I found my old trombone teacher he's still with us I, I discovered via social media and I spoke with him a few months ago and it was amazing because I discovered something that I didn't even realize you know and this is to do with the, my start in, in in music I'd attempted to play an instrument earlier on I wanted to play sax that didn't work out right. uh, I wanted to play trombone they didn't have one so I forgot about music and, and uh, got into sports I love basketball I still do so I thought I was going to be an athlete when I got to, 14 I was still because I sang in a choir, I love music. I still wanted to play an instrument. And I went to this trombone teacher, I was 14. And I said, I want to play the trombone. And he said, you're too old. And I said, really? You know, and he said, well, yeah. He said, you're too old for me to take on because you're going to be leaving school soon. So anyway, he gave me the trombone. I took it away for two weeks. He gave me the chance and I came back and he went, ah, okay, you can do this, you know. And then, you know, and I took my exams and like, he, he, you know, I was his best student in his words. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah. But anyway, when I spoke to him recently on the phone, he said to me, he said, you know, the school curriculum was the pe were the people telling me not to take you on because at 14, you know, over here, you are due to leave school at, at 16, right. generally. And, and they sort of say, don't take on students any older than, say, 12 or 13 or something like that. But right. so I only discovered a few months ago, he stuck his own neck out. He put his neck mm. on the line because he heard that I had some talent after a couple of weeks of playing it. And he, you know, and I, so in other words, he could have gone, yeah, you're too old. That's the, them's the rules. That could have been the, that's it. My wow. whole life could have changed, but because he did that for me, you know, so, and I only discovered this a few months ago. So, wow. but anyway, studying with him, you had to read music. You know, that was the thing. It was proper formal training. So, but I, I found it quite easy and I was a terrible academic. You know, I was, I've got no qualifications in any other academic subject you know other than the trombone he just everything just the planets came together like this so by the time I switched to bass I was reading four clefs on the trombone because I was playing in dance bands pop funk orchestras and in brass bands you have to play treble clef only in mm -hmm. orchestras you have to play bass tenor and alto clef because of the range of the instrument sure. and they put four clefs so by the time I became a bass player there was nothing that I couldn't read because I'd already played the most complex music of every style on the trombone before I even got to bass now did you study with a, a, a Samandel book 
Well, as a bass player, I was self-taught. So we had a school band. We wanted to play some more jazzy kind of stuff. And we had everything but a bass player. So I sort of said, because I fooled around on my brother's guitar. So I was the only one that even held a stringed instrument. I volunteered, got a bass guitar, which was a, a K Fender Precision copy. <laughs> Everybody loved those, yeah. The, Actually, the, was about this time. Oh, my God. And it, and it weighed more than a black hole. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just it might as well. It was a real boat anchor, you know. But it was a start. And then my trombone teacher, who I was still studying with, so I was fifteen. He he saw my progress. Now he was also a fixer in my town. He would book musicians for theatre work sessions, whatever. So so you know, he was a great trombone teacher. But he was watching my progress on bass as well. And when he saw, because he thought I could use this guy, because he wanted the trombone gigs himself. Oh. He's not going to give me the trombone gigs, but when he saw me playing bass, he just thought I can book this guy. So, and he said to me, great piece of advice. He said, listen, if you want to do this for a living, and I think you're good enough to do this, I, I've not even considered this at all. But he said, if you take up upright bass, you'll get way more work than if you just choose electric. So that was mm-hmm. the, so this guy, Phil Johnson, his name is, you know, he, he changed everything for me. I, I literally owe him everything. So great trombone teacher taught me how to read, but also advised me to take up the upright bass as well. So so that my reading was already in great shape, yeah. uh, you know, but the problem there was, the problem there, it was a blessing and a curse. Because so I was getting tons of work after that in, in pit, doing pit work in shows, sure. in, in, in uh, you know, recording sessions, and everything was written down. The bass parts were written out, right. note for note. You know? So no chords, no improvisation at all. And life was good. I'm thinking, this is fantastic, you know. And then a friend of mine who's a fellow trombonist, you know, he said, you've just started to play the bass, haven't you? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, he said you, need, you need to listen to this guy. And he, he, he lent me uh, the Weather Report album, Night Passage. That was Night Passage by Weather Report featuring Jaco Pistorius. Let's continue our conversation with Dave Swift. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. 1980, I was 16, you know. He said, you need to listen to this guy. I'm just a Jacko, Jaco, what's this guy called? And I just thought, oh, my days, you know, I'd never, never. So all the stuff I'd been doing had been very basic, standard bass lines, you know, nothing. Pre-Jacko era, David, right? We 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 always talk pre-Jacko, post-Jacko. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and that was it. That everything changed, and I just thought to myself, "Oh my god, I didn't realize there was this whole new world of of that kind of playing." That was Weather Report doing "Rockin' in Rhythm," featuring Jaco Pistorius. This is notes from an artist on CygnusRadio.com. I didn't realize that people were doing that on the bass. I'd heard sax players doing it and piano players, but I'd never heard that before. And I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I, I thought I was just doing great, kind of going boom, gong, 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 When you were born, cream was about ready to start happening. So the stuff that, to me, there's such a uh, correspondence and a connection between Jacko and Jack Bruce. Okay, okay. I mean, I never did meet Jacko. I've, I've actually played with Jack, but I played trombone with him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I opened for Jack for a number of shows. As amazing as his bass playing was, his uh, stride piano just blew me away. Oh, I didn't know he played that. Oh, my gosh. Uh. And it, it's funny, too, because I, um, I was at one of my six-string basses. I had to deal with Warwick, Okay. oddly enough, with Woody or Woody. We were at the music mess. Jack was there. It was 10 in the morning. He was drinking cognac. I stayed away. 
you know. Uh, to get back to the story, though, the, the reality is when you were born, yeah, you were pre-Jocko, but post-Jack. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure, so sure. so you, you immediately went into pits and everything where me being a little older than you, uh, it was like rock and roll. I'm band thing. So yeah. I didn't really learn to read well. Until I was 17, 18, when I went to Berkeley, because I had no choice. I had to. And as Tom and I always talk about the Carol Kay books, when you don't know how to read, they're really difficult. And and once again, ask the question, Tom, what the hell? What is a boogaloo? Exactly. I don't well, know, but it sounds good. It sounds good. Well, that, that's that's the good point because going back to the original question, uh, you know, there were no bass teachers. I could not find a bass guitar teacher where, where I lived. There just weren't any. I looked everywhere. So for me, I learned through those books. It was like the yeah. Carol Kay books, you know, and, and watching TV, you know, watching Top of the Pops. And also watching one of Jules's early TV shows, which was called The Chew, co-hosted with Paula Yates, you know. Yes. And I literally was just sitting there watching the bass player's hands. And their, and their fingers, seeing it. That's how I learned. But it was those early books. There, were, there was no one to study from. So the thing for me that I struggled with was, was my e- was ears. Because at that time, everything I was given was written down. And then I started to do stuff where people would say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll jam this one out, you know, and they'll just shout. Key, and I'm kind of going, well, oh, hang on, what do you mean jam? Where's the chart? You know, where's, where's the music? <laughs> and they said, there isn't one. Just, just. Busket and man alive, did I come crashing down on that because I'd never experienced that. As a matter of fact, the day we interviewed you at Terminal Studios, uh, two of the other guys that were in were Phil Spaulding and Mickey Feet. And you know, great studio credits with uh, both those guys. Phil Spaulding doesn't read music, and Mickey Feet was telling us that, well, producers hired you for your feel, they didn't necessarily hire you for your dexterity. Or your reading chops, because Mickey said back in those days, they booked the whole day, rock stars booked the whole day in the studio, and they could work parts out and just nail them. So that's actually, in a sense, a different skill than the reader. I had that experience when I was at Miami University School of Music. All these jazz guys could not just jam on an E7. They were lost. And they played everything with a bebop swing feel. So it's interesting that that, even for the educated musician, being able to busk it as a skill you must develop. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And for me, it was baptism by fire because it it happened. I always sort of say that you often learn the best lessons in life under the most awkward, cruciating circumstances. You know, when you're embarrassed and you're... I think it's like the Charlie Parker story, isn't it? With the, with the symbol comes crashing exactly. in front of him, you know. And I had, mine was probably just people glaring at me, you know, why do you not know this standard or whatever, you know, because everything I played in, like I said, had parts, but it, it started to change. And all of a sudden I then started to do sessions and people couldn't be bothered to write out a bass part yeah. for you. They just started You'd be lucky to if you got a lead sheet. Yeah, exactly. And it started to be chords. And then eventually nothing. You would just turn up and you had to listen to the track. But I saw those changes happening. So I realized quickly that I had to, you know, really develop my ears. And the only way that I could do that was, you know, deliberately when I moved to London was taking gigs where I knew there was going to be no music, often playing with people I'd not played with before. I didn't know what the tunes were going to be. I just thought I need to put myself in this fire pit you know and just and so you know learning on the bandstand it was quite old school and uh, and it it was a shock to me because I was so used to that sort of uh, the safety net of the chart for so long so it took me so you know when you hear guys now saying oh the reading thing I can't I just can't begin to imagine that the reading thing for me was easy yeah that's it that's so inverted yeah 
<laughs> take, take the chance away and it's like what you know but you know that was a long time ago so as time went on everything balanced out you know so these days I'm happy to do either and it's important for me to do both as well if if I could only do one or the other I would definitely my career would suffer if if one one thing was taken away now well, it's interesting. Also, David and I spoke with uh, George Porter Jr. Uh, a few weeks ago. Now, you think of George Porter, not only did they make records with the meters, but they did hit records with Dr. John, uh, Tori Amos, uh, Robert Palmer, uh, Patti LaBelle. George was telling us they just walked in. They barely got lead sheets and, and quite essentially the parts they came up with made the hit records like we were talking about Anthony so, yeah. you know, there's a whole cadre of, of studio musicians. Another guy who uh, is like that is Earl Slick, who I'm sure you've worked with. Sure. And Earl, you know, when, you know, all those parts he did on David Bowie records and the interview asked him, why don't you get writing credits on it? Well, that's why they hire me. And that's why I charge what I do, because I come in with a hook. So it's an important, it really is an important balance. And it makes you wonder if some of those great players, had they have had the the start that I had, which was before you even play an instrument, you know, here's the book, right, here's right. The, here's the method book, you know. Right. Um, and, and of course, my, my trombone teacher at the time, he did that because that was the curriculum. That's what you yeah. had to do, you know. I mean, I'm hoping these days that kids are given more options to, to study by ear as, as mm-hmm. well, because I think, I think, you know, if you just start off with that reading thing and you get so down the rabbit hole with it, it can be so detrimental to your creativity as well. Uh, Pino Palladino, right, was uh, his first gig when he moved to London was with Jules Holland. Right. You, you, I, yeah. kinda, I took you over. Him. Yeah, yeah, I took over from him. Now, now, Pino, I don't know these days, but as far as I know, that Pino is a non-reader. But man, what a monster player, you know, one of the greatest of all times. And it makes you sort of wonder, you know, had he have been put in that situation where he'd have had to study music Mm -hmm. academically, would he be as creative and as flamboyant? You know, it it does. Has that come from from not doing that? And it's just purely listening and improvising all the time from day one, which what took me years to do. It took me years to sort of end up busking and improvising. But he did it from day one. So I think that creativity is going to be stronger within a plan like that. But it's difficult, you know, giving advice to younger players because, I mean, I didn't go to music college either. So I left school at 16 and turned pro pretty much straight away, you know. But part of me wishes that I could have gone to college. I think I would have quite enjoyed it, you know. But then Mm -hmm. who knows, had I gone, maybe I wouldn't have got the gig and... You know, right. things were different. So I can't say to people, you know, do do what I did and just play and get get out there and whatever, because that's quite reckless. It's very reckless advice. At the same time, if I say to someone, you have got to go to college, you have got to get a degree in music, it's kind of still reckless to say it's that. Very you know, reckless, because, yeah, yeah. Because it might not be right for them, you know. The people have to make their own choices. But for me, in my job, the ability to read and to busk and improvise and use your ears it has to be, both have to be very, very strong. And that's the only way that I've had the 40-year career that I've had. That was Cry Myself to Sleep with Michael McDonald and Candy Dolfer. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Let's get back to our conversation with Dave Swift. But check this out, check this out. Jules is bad. I think we've talked about this before. There is still only myself and the horn section that read. Jules, I think, probably reads a, a little but yep. he's predominantly an ear player. And the guitarists, our drummer, and our organ player, 
or yeah. all ear, ear players. Mm-hmm. Now, we're all in the same band. We're all playing with the same artists. You know, we're playing the same songs on the same TV shows. And it all works out somehow. <laughs> that was Please Can I Talk by the Sugar Babes with the great Dave Swift on bass. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. But shouldn't the bass player be the most educated? Because every note has a function within the chord. And let's face it, a guitar player, keyboard player can get away with, you know, gliding over the changes if they don't quite know it. But a bass player, you've got to land on that route. You've got to outline the changes. Well, yeah, exactly that. And I think especially if you're a guitarist and a keyboard player, especially, you know, I, I often look when I play with guys, if, if they take their hands off the instrument just to sort of scratch their ear. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I wonder what that chord was there. I wonder if that was like a particularly complex chord. You know, it's like, oh, <coughs> oh there was like, you know, whereas, yeah, as you said, with the bass and drums, there's no stopping. But, you know, that's the reason why, you know, I mean, I've got charts here. In fact, this is my... This is my handwritten chart for when I play with Paul Simon. Oh, uh, wristband. <laughs> yeah, there it is. I still use pencil and manuscript. God um, bless you. <laughs> I mean, and it's kind of messy, you know, but having said that, you know, Paul, as we discussed before, Paul kept changing. The meter. And... Around, you know, but, um, but I, you know, I do a lot of these. I mean, here's like a Jameson's part. You wow. know, Darling, Darling Deer, one of my favorite bass parts, you know. So I, I'm, I'm a real pedant when it comes to to the work and I think it all stems from being a bad student at school if I could go back in time now I would be very scholarly at school you know I think a lot of us have that same you know what I mean uh, I, 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 I used to be the kid that sat at the back kind of going don't ask me I don't know <laughs> but now <laughs> but if I could go back in time I'd be the kid at the sitting at the front saying pick me pick me because I'd be so much more studious this time round you know, yeah, yeah. You know, I so I think all of this—it's kind of me, you know, making up for making a mess of my education in high school. You know, I don't want to be the same person I was back then. You know, kind of. I, I so I love doing the work and really being quite uh, pedantic about the whole thing. Because I and also, you know, when you play with these artists, the the baseline is often more specific than anything else there. And if I'm playing with certain people and I've just listened to it vaguely, the track, and I'm playing an approximation. And, and Shaka Khan comes up to me and said, it's very nice, Dave, but it's not what's on the record. <laughs> you yeah. know, can you play what's on the record? And I'm kind of, oh, oh I, I thought this was close enough. Okay, so then you've got to, what, you've got to go away? You've got to go, go off the bandstand and learn that stuff. So for me, do the hard work, do the homework right. at the very beginning, well in advance. So you come to them, you nail what's on the record, they're happy. And of course, they can turn around and say, you don't have to play what's on there. You know, you can free that up. But at least you've done the work. You've done the right. work in the beginning. You never know who, right, the artist may want it note for note or just want your own interpretation of it. Which brings up a quick question. How, how much in advance do you get material for the show? Well, if it's the, it does differ. So say, for instance, our New Year's Eve TV show, which is called Jules Holland's Hoot Nanny, because Hoot we Nanny. have to play with a lot of people on that. Uh, you know, some some years we've had to play with like 10 different artists on the same show you know which is a real roast you know because you're playing with people you've never played with before you're playing songs you never play with so often you know you you might get the tracks maybe a week uh, in advance on, on those you know and then some other times if we're just playing with like one person if i'm playing with one person you, you know you might get it the night before sometimes you get it the day and in the, in the in years gone by, when we've done some of Jules's radio shows, 
we haven't even been given the track. We haven't even been, you know, we've been told who the artist was. I mean, for instance, you know, we had Amy Winehouse on the radio show once and we knew she was coming in at just a rhythm section, but we didn't know what track. So we're thinking, oh my God, you know, so she comes on the show and we're all sitting there, hi, how's my, you know. And then all of a sudden, the track gets chosen. They go into the control room and put a CD in there, and it's Jules' rhythm section. And we've got to listen to the track sitting in front of Amy. And we've got to learn it while she was sitting there kind of, you know, filing her nails or something like that. And you know that you've only got, like, maybe two listens through tops, and you, sure. and you have to be able to play it live. And, you know, uh, and was like, John Altman on that date? No. No, no, no. no. Oh, oh he, was he? Oh, he might have been. <laughs> do you know john yeah yeah i've got to call him because i want him on the show yeah i i, I can't because that day there was there was a bunch of people there you know but i can't remember i was i was just kind of all i could think about was my god you know we've got to learn this song quick <laughs> gosh you would think amy winehouse would have an arranger that come in, came in at least with lead sheets and things just, you know what the amazing yeah. People often say, you know, do any of the artists come with stuff? And they, and they just don't. The only one I can remember, yeah. we, we played with Andy Williams on George's TV show. And right, right. Andy's guy had some charts. But, you know, with all due respect to the other guys in the rhythm section, I was the only one that could actually right. use right. it. You know? But no, more often than not, we just get sent a recording and we've got to, we've got to do our own thing, which in my case is immediate transcription. Right, right, right. Just so I've got it and just so I can look at it and study it and make sure, of, you know. And then if there's time, I will always attempt to learn it by heart if I can. Mm-hmm. That was Ray Davies doing Other People's Lives. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Doesn't it frustrate you when you see a jazz band on the bandstand? They've been playing the same music for like months <laughs> and they've got their sheet music in front of them. Oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. it infuriates me. So you have to know these songs by now, for God's sake. Yeah, and it's worse when it's like a real book and you can see it's a real book. And it's it's one of those, <laughs> those cheap music school stands. Unreal really book. Do. It's not even like a heavy-duty pro stand. Right, where the real book falls off the stand, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you know, I, discussing education, because I, it, it's a subject that fascinates me because experience the college side of it, but I, I am interested in, in how people study and learn, especially with jazz, which is probably my favourite genre of music to listen to it and to play, you know. I, I think what it is, it's the same with transcription books as well, with the real book. It's like... If you look at all the great jazz musicians, you know, they learned from just listening. You know, they learned from their contemporaries. You know, they learned from the recordings. They went straight to the source. And I think what's happened now is because that is kind of quite daunting for a lot of people. And it's time consuming as well. So, wow, you can, you can buy a book that, that it means you can get through all of those songs with just by turning a page-ish, you know. Or, you know, if you want to learn... A Jacko thing, you can buy a book because someone's done all the work for you, kind of thing. You right, know? right. But we all know how flawed those things are because, you know, the the whole thing with transcriptions and whether you're doing them, whether you're writing them down, because that's the other recent thing that I've been reading a lot about is, I mean, I do a lot of written transcriptions, you know, but yeah. sometimes there's as much benefit by doing them in your head, by actually not committing them to paper. Right, you internalize. Often, what people do is, you know, they'll write this stuff down, and then either forget about it and just just feel really happy with themselves that they <laughs> look what I've done. You know, I've got all these transcriptions, but can you play them? You know, exactly. are you benefiting from them. You know, uh, yeah. have you have you assimilated them? You know, so 
So particularly with the whole school of thought with the real books, you know, some people say the real books should be put in the bin, you know, you know, if you if you want to play those songs and play them well and be an accomplished player, go to the source, you know, listen to the listen to the recordings, do what all those guys did. The Ron Carter book, Charcotography, yes, is one of the most fantastic concepts. Forget the book itself. If you can draw the concept out of it, which is what he does is he takes autumn leaves. He takes it once per year for the five years he was with Miles. Right. He then doesn't do one chorus. He does four or five. Okay. And he puts the harmony. He puts the chords down. You know, when you're doing autumn leaves and you go from a C minor bar one to a C sharp diminished bar two. Wow. Why? Hey, I got to think here. What's that all about? And he does that for the book. So once again, we discussed it with Ron. But when I put the book down, I, it was like, now what do I have to do? How do I have to rethink? So much of what I've done, it gives your ears a workout. It gives your fingers a workout. It gives your writing a workout if you do decide to to transcribe it. It's a brilliant and who but Ron Carter to come up with it, right? Right, and you get the, uh, the, fo- the cue thing on the phone to actually listen to the recording as well. Yeah, oh yeah, he had the QR code so you can yeah. listen to those exact recordings. Wow. That's, that's very fabulous. Cool. But I think what's happened as well with, with things like the, the, the real book and transcriptions generally, because, you know, back then, those great jazz musicians, you know, that, that was their life. You know, it wasn't just like earning a few quid or a pastime or a hobby. You know, jazz for them was a, was a lifestyle. Whereas I think with a lot of musicians now, it, it is like a casual thing. It's a bit of a fun thing. So there isn't that kind of environment or, or perhaps incentive to have that repertoire to, to learn stuff you know so people just think well look I've not gone to a gig for like another two months you know like it's just easy to turn up and just read the just put the book on the stand you know because it's not that big a deal and I think that's what's happened you know it's kind of laziness as well and, but obviously I, I know great jazz, young jazz musicians that wouldn't dream of using that and all day they're listening and listening and working stuff out that's their own choice you know but I think a lot of people but you know the transcription book as well it, they, they drive me crazy because most of them are so bad yes, you know, yes. I and mean, I've bought so many of them over the years and some some are better than others but Man, I always look at the mistakes and I'm thinking, wow, someone's making a lot of money from, from this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and also what's happening is that people, like I said, it's, it's, it's a shortcut for them because they mm-hmm. think, oh, wow, someone's done all the work. And they're even bypassing listening to the tracks. They're just kind of going what's on the page, which is... Complete. But then think about this, Dave and Tom. Think about your, you've got your real book up there. You're going to do Autumn Leaves, but you're bringing a singer up. <laughs> You didn't see. <laughs> You're screwed. <laughs> Those dots on the neck don't mean anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Get a cable. That was Terry Walker doing Misfit with the Jules Holland Band on Later with Jules Holland. Dave Swift, our guest on bass. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. You know, we talk education. One of the things David and I try to stress also is the history of the instrument. This is just as important in education. If you were on a session and, and I said, hey, could you play the chorus like Sir Paul? Or could you give me a little Duck Dunn or Jameson on the bridge? You understand what I'm saying. With your students, Dave, do you find that they have a sense of history? I know probably I was going to say the most famous young bass players on the scene that everybody knows now is Joe Dart, maybe Michael League, certainly Esperanza and Tal uh, Winkenfield are, you know, very high profile. But uh, do your students have a sense of 
where the instrument came from. Only after I've told them. <laughs> okay. Because the beautiful thing now about YouTube is we can watch Ron Carter. We can watch Anthony Jackson. We can watch European jazz shows and things. It's amazing to see. We can watch Jocko and say, oh, that's how he positions Teen Town. Okay. You know. Sure, sure. But yeah, that's a good point. Because when I started out... The first people that I ended up hearing were Jacko, Stanley Clark, quickly followed by Marcus Miller. So, and it's the same with with double bass players as well. You know, I was Stanley, and it was Ray Brown, but it took me years to go backwards to think, well, hang on, you know, who influenced those guys? You know, so then you start to read about Monk Montgomery on electric bass. Funnily enough, I've got a gig coming up soon, and somebody wants to create. It's like a big band, and they want to create some era in time because uh, I think it was Lionel Hampton that encouraged Monk Montgomery to, to get the electric bass when it came yeah, out. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Lionel yeah. was really into it. So this guy is on this big band. He wants me to play acoustic bass but to bring an electric to play some of those early things. Fender J bass you need on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly that, you know. But it took me years, I, I'm embarrassed to say, to discover who Jameson was even though I've been hearing him the whole You're time. Right. It's the same with upright bass. I had to go back. Jimmy Blanton, I had no idea. It took me years because when you're kind of young and you, you hear all the really flash guys you hear the fusion guys and they were they're the ones that drew you to the instrument because of how crazy flamboyant they were and, and, and also the availability of recordings as well you know so so yeah it, it, but i made sure and i've got like folders now and i've got like you know jazz bass folders where I, you know i transcribe loads of ray brown stuff jimmy blanton mm-hmm. oscar pettiford went right back to the beginning and tried to do the same with electric players as well you know with, with sort of monk and you know carol Kay, of course all those guys so i think the history of it is is important but again but these days now you've got the joe darts and all that kind of thing so the same thing does happen now that happened yeah but i mean if you're a joe dart fan then you're going to want to hear jaco and uh, rocco prestia because that's where he's drawing from and- oh sure Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, for me, I wanted to go right yeah. back. The trouble, the trouble now is there's so time has moved on. So there's so much more the young guys have got to think leave. about it. Jocko and, and Prestia, we're talking 50 years ago. It's not, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just, those aren't new guys anymore. Jim Fielder. And you can make a case that he was pre Jocko, pre Rocco. If you yes. listen, you make me so very happy. That end, that cadenza he's doing there. Oh, good God. You know, <laughs> transcribe that one, why don't you? You know, what I mean? uh, we had a fascinating conversation with Jim. Yeah, exactly. And he applied even the Samondal technique to the uh, Fender bass. And sure. the reason he held it vertically was because he's used as an upright player to looking. The only two books that I had with, with upright, it was the Samandal and Ray Brown's bass method. That was it. Sure, okay. sure. That's, that's you all didn't I have had. the Rufus Reed book? Yeah, I got that a little bit later. Yeah, the Evolving Bassist and then Evolving Upward, yes. I think it was called. Yeah. Well, recordings for me became like, became everything. You know, that became the, my main education was the actual recordings, was, was going to the... Um, the source, as I like to call it, you know. All right, David. Yes. But, it's, but it's hard work, you know. That's that's tough because you know you've got to fight. You've got to find the tracks. You know, you need to listen to them. You need to immerse yourself in them. And then, if you want to do the transcriptions, and then it's, it's a lot of work. But then, you know, if if, if that's your job, and if, if that's what's going to benefit you as a musician and get you work and make you more employable, then why wouldn't you do it? You know. But, Absolutely. Uh, Try to watch as much uh, episodes as later as possible. Unfortunately, I think online they don't allow the British broadcasts here. We 
had it on cable TV here as part of MTV, but I think they've dropped it. But one of the um, things I'm concerned about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the state of the base nowadays. I would say that around the year 2000 or so is when Pro Tools became ubiquitous. I mean, when people set up their own home studios. (laughs) And what happened is, as a result of that, it, it prompted people to be more multi-instrumentalist, you know, because you you no longer had to go to a studio. You have fewer and fewer players, bass players, that played bass full-time. Now, when I think of the great British bass players, you know them all. Herbie Flowers, Bruce Thomas, Andrew Bodner, Kevin Wilkinson, Yolanda Charles, Mark Vedders, Mark King, Paul Denman, Gordon Sumner, Guy Pratt, Pino, uh, Norman Watroy. These individual players had such a personality and... If I saw Norman Watroy on the record credit, I'm going to buy that record. I want to hear what he's doing. But I watched Jules Holland. I watched a lot of the young players on the show, and they kind of lack harmonic and rhythmic diversity. I see them, and I know that bass isn't their first instrument, just the way they're holding it so timidly. Especially odd when I watch Jules, and you have all the great contemporary rhythm and blues artists, and you think about a rhythm and blues and soul music gave birth to, really, was the the bedrock was the electric bass. And I'm seeing that a lot of them are just like one-note root players that are just sort of an adjunct to the guitar, and I don't, obviously in metal and fusion, you're going to have people more dedicated to the bass. Is the instrument in a pop context on the decline? Because I just don't hear it the way I I used to hear it. Sure. I do agree with you, but then I suppose that the music itself, I mean, uh-huh. do you not think that that dictates some of it as well? Because if you listen to all those great players that you mentioned, a lot of the time, the, the music and the tracks they were playing on were very inventive and kind well, of... Well, they, they took their form from classical and jazz format, AABA and, and even, let's say, 12-bar blues. But now with, with hip-hop and electronic music becoming more prevalent, song form has changed. A lot of songs don't have a bridge. Sure, sure. That I don't hear. They don't have an intro. They don't have a coda. They don't have a modulation. It's yeah. a verse might be just a four-bar phrase, and then the chorus is like you know, maybe a two-bar phrase. Yeah, but it does make you wonder whether or not, yeah. you know, the bass players don't have the capability, or are they just thinking to themselves, my God, you know, if if I do anything too flamboyant in, in these songs, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb, you know. I'm always amazed that Jameson was able to do what he did. Yeah. You listen to those parts, you know, I played uh, for once in my life, on Jules' oh. TV show with Corin Bailey Ray. Right, right, yes. Great joy playing it in the original key was glorious. And I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is a tour de force. You know, this is, this is like a, a, a solo. But if you listen to it, you know, it doesn't ever sound conspicuous or wrong or, or ruin the song. You know, I mean, that's quite a, But I think because the song was very rich in itself, you know, the sort of harmonies and all the things going on. But I think in modern day pop stuff, it's probably more difficult to be more flamboyant in it because you're probably going to stick out too much. So I I I wonder if they're worried about being (laughs) conspicuous as well. Well, I don't, I just, you know, not so much flamboyance, but when I watch a lot of the young bands on Jules, I'm like, well, your guitar player is playing a bar chord in the root position. Why the hell are you playing a root? (laughs) I want to grab that thing in my corner and go on, you know, burst into your studio and say, hey, you know, let's hear some rhythmic diversity. Let's hear a little bit of, you know, like I said, when I listen to, you know, a Carl Radle or somebody, you know, the, you know, and I know I'm going back, but even guys like Guy Pratt, who came up with beautiful, beautiful lines. Sure, sure. I don't hear those hooks anymore. I don't hear, yeah. I don't hear that coming from the bass. It seems like the bass has kind of been, you know, pushed off in that sense. But then but on the, the other side of that, but then you, how do you then, because obviously those guys are they're gigging, you know, yeah, no, they are touring, yeah. all that kind of stuff. 
And then you get all the other people, the bedroom guys, who are wonderful, phenomenal yeah. players, you know, some a little over the top, you know. Mm-hmm. But these guys are, are in their bedrooms and not really out there performing, you know. And it yeah. just makes you kind of think, um, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I kind of, I'm torn between that. I, I totally get what you're saying and yeah. I do agree, but I suppose they are playing, you know, those are the people on Jules' show. They're, they're, they're still out there touring, playing stuff. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we all want to be doing. You know, we want right. to be out there as opposed to being in our bedroom, playing something sort of complex and flashy kind of thing, you know, so. And yeah. I just notice a lot of the acts on Jules don't have bass player, you know, and I'm like, on. Oh. What's going on there? The other thing is with, with bass players as well. I remember when I started out, so, do you remember my trombone teacher saying to me, you know, play upright, bass guitar, yeah. you'll work forever. And he was right, because when I came to London, there was a small group of guys just playing bass guitar, small group playing upright, and an even smaller group that were, like myself, were doublers. Right, double, yeah. And when I moved to London, man, I it was so easy to, to get work, because yeah. there were so few people that could play both, you know. So that, oh. was, that was fantastic. Definitely yeah. it was a, a big asset. But like now... Uh, and even with me playing the trombone as well, I, I'm, I'd be underqualified because like now bass players that, you know, they, they play upright, they play, well, when I say play upright, you know, they, they own an upright, you know, but let's just, let's just go with play. They play an upright bass, bass guitar, every variation of the bass guitar, keyboard bass, yeah. they do BVs. They're usually the MD of the band, you know, and I'm looking at these kind of guys. I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm underqualified and old, you know, it's like, <laughs> You know, I thought I was the head of the game back then, but now it's like, yeah, I play upright and like, yeah, and doesn't everybody? Yeah. Well, I thought, well, a lot of people might do, but how good are they on right. those instruments? You know, I guess it's more in the pop world, isn't it? But certainly with the key, the keyboard thing, and that, that seems to be a lot of the younger players that I know in pop bands. You know, the, ha- having the keyboard skills is, is a massive thing. They have to play a lot. But, you know, it's not just having the keyboard skill. It's having the keyboard skill and being able to accommodate this sound or that sound or create your own sound. You know, it's keyboard and oscillator. That's even gone. I remember um, I was in a band uh, on Mercury and I had an ARP mono synth thing. There wasn't very much you could do. There were certain sounds <laughs> yeah. and that was that. Now I've got, um, well, I don't have Pro Tools, I've got Logic. And I've got more plugins than you could possibly imagine. I don't know how to use them. They're there. I've not embraced technology well at all. You know, I mean, I don't have a home studio or anything like that. Here at home, I've got a laptop and, a, and an iPhone and that, that's it. Because I am 57 now, you know, I'm kind of, you know, getting on a bit. And all of my work has always been in professional studios. That's why I've, I've never needed to have anything at home. But now I'm starting to wonder, maybe maybe I should, because I'm getting asked to do remote recording. And I say... That's I, another I, fact of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm not looking forward to it because I'm not great with technology. My my wife, who's a lot younger than I am, she she does all that kind of kind of stuff. She understands technology better than I. But yeah, maybe it's something that I'm going to have to embrace. But I still like the idea of going into a, a commercial studio, which is what I've done for the last forty years. You know, and that uh... you have to get Oscar to be your engineer. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> um, COVID has changed the game. It's made remote recording so much more important to do and to yeah. know about. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And, and also, you know, I'm still waiting for that, the holographic technology so we can all be in our homes, but actually playing our instruments and they can just project it on a stage 
hundreds of miles away so we don't have to leave the house because wow. uh, you know t- touring you know i've been touring with jules for 30 years yes yeah you know like non-stop two big tours a year summer and you know i'm not complaining about it because it's been an amazing experience and you, you travel you get to see the world whatever but you know you hit a certain age and that's it, it gets grueling it gets tough after a while and a couple of years ago I, I i had some health issues and i was really struggling to be on the road and i almost said to jules i'm not sure if i can finish this tour you know i i i was feeling really really quite poorly you know but i i, I did it in the end but the touring thing is it's it's tough well it's going to be tougher with the coat with covid because i mean here in the united states every state has their own rules of course in europe you go from country to country there's going to be different parameters that you you know you're going to you know, you got to deal with that. That's it on top of how ha- what a hassle is to travel anyway. Well, luckily with Jules, you know, most of our work is in, is in the UK. Yeah, of course. Because you know. of his TV and his radio shows, that's where he's most mm-hmm. known. So it's going to be more problematic if we were a band that predominantly plays around Europe. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Which which we we very rarely go out there now because everything's here. But but yeah, we still don't know what's happening with that. Right now, we should be out on tour, touring all over the UK, and then the next tour would normally start the end of October and go till Christmas. Right. We don't even know if that's going to happen. We know a handful of gigs are going to happen, but the actual main body of the tour. When is the show going to start taping? What the the TV show? Yeah, it's been happening. Okay. You know, but what they've done is what they've had to do. So Jules's private studio is five minute drive from where I live. And that's where, you know, we would normally do all our rehearsals, album recordings and radio shows from there. But the TV stuff was always done at the BBC studios. Right. But obviously we, we did the New Year's Eve show, you know, Jules's Hootenanny. We did the one just gone because the BBC said we have that has to happen. You know, we can't. It's been going for almost 30 years. You know, the nation needs a boost. We need you guys on TV, albeit a, a little more plump than we were the previous year. You know, <laughs> what's the old joke? You know, like I, I hear the camera, the camera adds 20 pounds. It's like, yeah, well, it how does. many cameras were on him? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I knew I should have worn a cummerbund. No, I knew I should have <laughs> or I should I should have had my Ibanez bass a little bit lower. Yeah, that's yeah. what. See, this is where the coffee table bass comes into uh, play for and, us uh, uh, senior I musicians. Should, should have lowered the strap, but but yeah. So that was done at the TV studio. We all had to travel separately because normally we carpool when we go to the yeah, TV. Sure. We travel separately, social distance once we're there, and then normally we have like an audience in the TV studio. But then we have a celebrity that sit down and Jules goes to chat with. Right, as right, well yeah. as the artist that we're playing with. And it was yeah, just decided yeah. it was just too risky having all those people. So in the end, it was they just said, okay, it's and not even other bands on. You know, normally we're the featured house band. There's other bands on as well. And they sort of said, no, none of that. You know, you guys are the only band we're having. And so, yeah, so it was us, the artists we were playing for, and the camera crew. And mm-hmm. that was it. In this big, cavernous, empty room that's normally going crazy for the audience and it was odd because like you know we're playing with tom jones and michael kuanuka and celeste and rick wakeman we're playing with all these kind of guys and at the end of each song we'd stop and you'd just hear <laughs> from one camera guy maybe the guy someone making the tea yeah. Just hear this little bit. And so so that was that was kind of weird but it, it just <laughs> it, 
it's the only way they, they could have done it, you know. So that was a one-off. But but when uh, his regular TV show, later with Jules Holland, they they just, they, they couldn't, it was just too much hassle to, to do right. the same thing. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I, I was going to say that what they did, because we were the only band on there, we couldn't play the whole night because it would have killed us, you know. So what they did is we we played what we would normally do and they, they put uh, stock footage from previous episodes. Oh, right, in. right. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. So that gave us a break, you know, but... But on, so what's been happening on Jules' regular TV show, he said to the BBC, well, look, we, we can't have loads of crew, we can't have loads of musicians, why don't we do it at my studio? Which is quite snug. So on the current, and it's on TV right now, it's, it's just Jules, there's a piano, there's the, the guest, one person, there might be the producer there and maybe one camera, and that's it, that's the show. And it's just Jules chatting with them over the piano and they'll play, and Jules will get them to choose songs that have, have been on the series that yeah. they want to hear, you know. So there's no live thing. And we're not involved. We're all sitting at home. It's all because of COVID restrictions. I spoke with Richard Thompson last week, and he says things are opening up. Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, my because my wife, Lucy, she's a professional jazz singer. So we, yes. we, we've already done two gigs together the last, the last couple of Sundays here in London. Uh, Ronnie's, uh, Ronnie Scott. No, it's it, it's at a place called Boysdale. There's there's okay. four of them in London. They're live. They're like restaurant bar restaurants, but they're live music venues as well. Okay. So they're called Boysdale. There's one in Canary Wharf, which is actually very close for us. So you know we've been doing that as a as a quintet. So myself yeah. on upright, Lucy singing piano, drums, and sax. But yeah, and, and that's just kind of playing standards and stuff. So yeah, we we've started to do that, and I think it's sometime this month. I think it's in a few weeks, and they reckon that that's it. It's masks off, and we're back to it. Trouble with the the thing with the jewels thing is, is because the nature of the, the gigs that we do, they're very large venues. So London venues, we we do rural out hall. Yeah, right. We do two nights there, so huge venues with a lot of people and I don't know if people are going to be rushing out be with crowds so the gigs that Lucy and I are doing I mean you know there's still probably like a hundred people in these venues you know but everything's quite spread out and it's still uh, people probably still feel quite safe but someone like the wall out of the hall is very dense yeah, you can't. Yeah. I wonder what's going to happen. I, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a... It's tricky, isn't it, to ha- have the one job, the one type of job that requires large gatherings of people. <laughs> when does later uh, traditionally shoot? What time of year do they you guys usually... Tonight, it's it's like a couple of times a year. Like I said, it's it's actually on now. It's, yeah, it's but I'm just saying, tradi- without COVID, you, did you have, what, uh, two seasons a year? Is that how it worked? I think it's, yeah, it's at least two. Okay. It's at least two seasons, yeah. But it's um, the thing is, it's weird watching it now. Well, first of all, not being involved, it's, right. it's very, very weird. But uh, and the, and the format is literally he just has to chat with them. Sometimes a guest will come on and they might have an acoustic guitar and they'll do something. Right. Mostly it's chatting. But I think the the key thing is that he, the Jules he's keeping his name going. The right. Jules Holland TV show is still there. He's still on TV, which is good for us in his band, even though we're not involved with it because we yeah. can't. But it, it's better than the BBC saying this and that's just can the whole thing until you know. So it's and it's and it's great for him that he, he's actually got that private studio. That he can say to the BBC, "Listen, come to come to my place. This is keep the gig alive." Yeah, yeah, you know. So that's that's really important for us, you know. But it's to have been doing that touring and all that TV stuff, you know, having that kind of uh, conveyor belt of artists that you've got to play for, and it just all sort of stops, you know. So it's it's, it's a tough time, but I think it's it's important, you know, to keep motivated because it's yeah. it's really easy to kind of lose heart with what's going on, and that's the reason why I. It's been great for me, actually, because I've been able to put a lot more time on the trombone that I don't normally get to do. 
you know, the trombone often sort of. How do you get, you get to spend more time with Oscar? I see on Facebook every morning what you guys are up to. Oh, he's fine on his own. He doesn't need me. <laughs> doesn't and, um, yeah, I mean, that is that is great too, you know. But yeah, yeah. And, and like, from, you know, for me taking up the guitar, uh, it's been great because the idea there is, you know, Lucy and I did some duo videos. I don't know if you, if you saw any of them. We just yeah, did yeah, them, yeah. Me on Upright. And people thought they were great, you know, but the thing is, you can't do like a whole gig, a whole evening with just voice and double bass. The, the, once you've done Fever and maybe <laughs> Moon Dance, you know, the, the novelty is going to wear off. You know, piano thing is just too much work. It's just too much work for me. But the guitar, tuned in fourths, it's coming together. It's really coming yeah. together. And I said to her, I said, yeah, maybe we can go out and do some some gigs, uh, you know, together like that, you know, with because at least then we've got a chordal instrument. Can you imagine going out and say, yeah, we've, we've got this husband and wife duo. She's a singer and, and I play the trombone. <laughs> I'd pay. I'd see that. Yeah. <laughs> Two things I want to wrap up with. Uh, first of all, you have an amazing collection of instruments. Where do you keep them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. V- various places, various places. I mean, so some, you know, I mean, a, a lot A lot of them are here at home. You know, okay. some of them are a studio, but... Uh, yes. But yeah, it was a lot easier when I was, because um, I've only been with Lucy like five years. You know, when, when I was a bachelor, it was a lot easier because you could leave them in the bathroom, in the kitchen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> My wife <laughs> is nodding her head, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I've had to be, um, so yeah, they're, they're under the bed, they're in cupboards. But, uh, and we've, we've got a basement as well. And luckily, you know, for years, I wouldn't put anything in the basement because I was terrified of doing it. But sure, floods. I've lived here long enough to realize it's actually really good down there. The temperature, it's dry and stuff like that. So, so yeah, it, it's, uh, some of them live down there now. But, you know, certain, a lot of them I just never get to play because they were, and they weren't all bought to play. They were bought because they were kind of rare, unusual, yeah. a little quirky. They were part of the history of the instrument, you know, the evolution of the instrument. Right, yeah, I noticed you have those Fender, those uh, active ones. Remember those, David, that came out in 1980? Active? Those, yes, active? Fender Pete will go watch, go go on Dave uh, Swift's Facebook page, and he has <laughs> five of every, in every color, I think. It was the first time they, that Fender did an active bass guitar with an active onboard preamp. Yeah. So they came out in 1980 called the Fender Precision Specials, and they did them in some really cool colors. They did candy apple red, like yeah. they did a white one, and an all walnut, which yeah. is walnut neck fingerboard, the lot. And I've got every variation of apart from the candy apple red with a rosewood board. It's, right. it's the rarest of them all, you know, but no. I've got all the others. And they, do you know what? They sound amazing, but heavy instruments, heavy. yes, aren't they heavy? Oh, yeah. They, they, they're notoriously heavy. They, 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 they weigh, they, they're like a black hole. You know, they're kind of they're soup too. You couldn't play them standing. You'd be in pain with those. But they do sound with a, with a preamp engaged. They sound incredible. And I've got those Roland the synthesizers. You know, oh, the early sure. Roland bass. Yeah, yeah. So I've got the ones that look you know more traditional, um, the very early ones, and then I've got the other ones with the with a hand. It looks like a bow. Yeah, like yeah. A bow and arrow some, thing. some people like refer to them. You know, you know Doctor Who and the Daleks. They 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 call them. Uh, <laughs> The Daleks handbag. <laughs> handbag so I've got every variation of those, including a rare fretless one. Uh, I've got the floor units for them. Uh, yeah. In fact, Roland keeps saying to me, they keep saying, you know, we, we should have them on display somewhere or we should do a photo shoot with them because I've got the whole set of these. There was a white, a black and a red one. So Moog Taurus pedals. No, I, I don't have those, actually. There's no room. I couldn't squeeze another thing in here, you know. <laughs> she would kill me. Wait until uh, Oscar gets a little older, Dave, because this 
this is a really a nice size room, you know? Uh, Look at that. <laughs> but when they turn 16, yeah. it's no longer your room. <laughs> so Saturday night, they're going to have a party here. 13 oh, people. Hide everything. They move everything. They move everything. So just wait. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I have these things, you know. Um, Dave, uh, one of the things we want to wrap up with is, um, you know, we spoke to Ron Carter, as we mentioned, and, you know, for 50 years, people have been asking him, what did you learn from Miles? And he says, well, let me tell you what Miles learned from me. And we asked the same thing of Denny, because obviously, you know, even though he's played with so many major artists, everybody wants to know about Wings. And uh, Denny Sywell, the drummer. And, um, you know, again, what did you learn from Paul? And he says, well, let me tell you how I influenced Paul. When, when Dave Swift is on the gig, what do the, what do the band leaders learn from you? What are the people, the artists, there has to be some reciprocal <laughs> energy there. They got to get some, they, they, why do they call you? I know obviously you're proficient and you can do the job, but what, what sure. do you add to the, uh, I think my tenacity is the great appeal. And also because anyone that hires me knows, knows that I will always go the extra mile, whether it's learning the material, getting to rehearsals early. It's just, it's that preparation. They mm-hmm. just know that they don't, they won't lose a minute of sleep because whatever they send me that needs maybe working out, changing, whatever, you know, uh, that's important to me. You know, that's, that's a, that's a great thing. But just also I'm, I'm quite diplomatic as well. Kind of, I mean, the one thing that I, I got from the Jules gig is, you know, you have to be a lot more than a musician. You know, you have to be a babysitter, a social worker, a diplomat, because some of those people that come and play with us, you know, they're in the alien environments. You know, we're in our element on that TV show. Right. And you'd be amazed at the, the, the artists that come in, really, really famous, who, who are a little bit nervous and certain. And I've been asked, you know, to, can you spend some time with them, just chat with them, make them feel better, make them feel comfortable? Sure, you wow. Know, that kind of stuff. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is so weird because I'm just like a working bass player and these people are, are superstars. Yeah, but you're on television every night and that's, that's intimidating. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess so, you know, and like um, the time we played with Smokey Robinson and like we, we, we hadn't got a guitarist and Jules get Eric, got Eric Clapton, you remember, you know. When we got told that we can't rehearse with Smokey because his planes come in late and Eric's kind of like, he, you know, he couldn't believe it, you know, and I said, <laughs> welcome to my world, you know. Wow. This, we're used to this kind of, sometimes this stuff happens, you know, but I guess for him, when yeah, he's sure. in his own band, everything's much more organized but now he's the guy who reads a chart (laughs) and you know does the prep that way if you know what i mean there you are thrust into a situation where all of your floors will be uncovered Uh, nationally (laughs) oh yeah it's it's a roast it's it's a real roast of the gig but so yeah for that reason you know you can't take any chances so yeah for for me i think i get looked you know because people know that uh, you know, I will always go o- overboard in in yeah. preparation, and so they they haven't got anything to worry about. You know, because again, it all stems back from being the kid at school, the one that didn't do that, that didn't do their homework, really and figur- figuratively. You know, so I'm not going to get caught out again. No way. <laughs> it's a good thing it's like everything else it's always a good thing the nature of a lot of stuff what we do with jewels it, it is kind of old school kind of r&b sort of blue stuff and occasionally we'll play we'll play a funk thing or we'll play something that's a bit more hip like that where i get to stretch out preparation on reading going the extra mile that's so important for our listeners for aspiring yeah. bass players and i'll tell you something for some of the bass players who have been doing a lot of work it either convinces them that they were 
we're on the right path or maybe, yeah. hey, maybe I should look a little bit this way. So it's all important. It really yeah. is. Yeah. And you know what? It's kind of, it might sound like, you know, you know, this sort of the, the thing where the, the kid comes to school with a shiny apple for the teacher, you know, <laughs> kind of, it might sound a little bit like that, but it, it really isn't. It's, it's about being as professional as you can, because if this is your job, if it's your, if it's your livelihood and it's your legacy, I never want to be the guy that's caught out. I never want to be the person that hasn't done the work. I want to be now the guy that sits back and relaxes while anybody else who hasn't done it is kind of going on, you know, with, with all due respect. I don't want to be that person. And and also when I look at the, the level of work I put into it, there's probably people that have done way more than I have. For me, I mean, I mean, I work really hard with, with all of this preparation stuff, but there's probably people that make me look like a slacker still. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. You know, those kind of, those virtuoso uh, fusion guys, you know, who who do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I probably, I could do, must do better from my point of view. But for, for me, this is what I need to do for, for my job. You know, there's, yeah. you know, sometimes I'll, I'll go crazy. And I, I mean, I once transcribed all of Jacko's solo to Donna Lee. I did the, the head of the solo. It's like seven pages long, you know. It took wow. me six months. I'm mean, obviously not nonstop. I, I was doing other things in between that. But, and then at the end of it, I thought to myself, you know, this is kind of great. It was good for my ears. But I haven't got the time to, to learn to play this now. Because it's like, you know, so for me, it made a lot more sense to do you know stuff like you know jameson's which are still a challenge oh absolutely but at least they're usable in a practical way so by spending time on that kind of stuff i can actually use those in my own playing stuff whereas i can't imagine like doing a gig with my wife and in in the middle of a nice ballad i start to play a section from jacko's donnelly and (laughs) i think i think my own wife might even fire me you know so (laughs) well i'm thinking of it you have the charlie parker omni book correct Sure. Go read Chi-Chi and play it on your six-string bass. It's all in first position. I did an article for Bass Musician Magazine on it, but it lays beautifully on the six-string bass. Oh, nice, nice. Funnily enough, I, I was going, I was playing guitar today. I was playing blues for Alice. Okay. On guitar with it, so I'll have a look at that one. I think it's important to study stuff that you're going to use. It's going to be applicable. Again, sometimes I might hear like a nice Marcus thing, you know, and I'm thinking, that's beautiful. I love his playing, but there's not really any much point in me doing that because I can't imagine I'm going to be able to use it anywhere. It's not that practical to me, you know, whereas a lot of the other stuff, say James or whatever, is it's important to be realistic about it as well. Dave, thanks for talking. My Great pleasure. to see you again. We hope to get to the UK. Hopefully I'll get there next year. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, I hope, hope so. Well, you know, do, do give me a call, you know, and I'm very flattered that people ask me <laughs> to, to do them. But I always kind of think that, you know, as, as long as there's some benefit that people get, as long as there's some little nugget of knowledge or whatever, you know, I, I'd, uh, I'd hate to think I'm sort of boring people. That's our it's job. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jules play with his thumb, you know, and that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, well, you know, sometimes, I mean, all, all you can really talk about is, is what is your own experience. You know, yeah. you, you can just, and that's the most honest thing you can do. Two things, though. Ron Carter said this, when I get off the road, I spend an hour learning to practice the A scale till I get it right. That's one thing. And two, it's important to be with some adults. And that's what we hope to be. Adults <laughs> in the room being able to ask pertinent questions that aren't, you know, fanboy crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you know, just really finally, one of my favorite quotes, and you guys have probably heard it, and I'm still not quite sure it's attributed to, but people often say to me, you know, how do you get where you are? How do we get to be, to do what you do and all this kind of stuff? And, 
you know, I just like that saying, you know, the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Good, good words. Well, or someone said, I think the hard or the harder you practice, but I, I, I heard it, the harder you work. You know? And I think, I think that's a lot of truism there because, you know, if nothing comes from nothing, yeah. you know, you know, you've got to be doing stuff. You've got to be proactive more so than ever now with the competition that's there in this industry. There's so many more people who want to be musicians. When I was a kid, our music department and our drama department were empty. There were yeah. tumbleweeds rolling by. No one wanted to play an instrument. No one wanted to sing. Yeah. But now, that's what everybody wants to be on the stage. I always say there's, there's going to be no audience left. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So... So, yeah, I said to them, look, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years. You know, this is and 10 years before I got the Jules gig, 10 years of being a pro player, just doing what everyone else has done, you know. So, so yeah, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I kind of like that. Yeah, here we go. Philosopher Dave. All right, gentlemen. Have a good one, Dave. See you in 2022, hopefully. And we'll keep you, we'll, we'll, you'll get us on Facebook and we'll send you all the links and everything. Okay, brilliant. It's lovely to see you guys. Thank you so all much. Right. For Great you. stuff. That's our show for tonight, folks. We are being brought to you by Modacity. Maximize your musical potential with Modacity. Practice is incredibly important for success, but it's not simply about how much time you practice. It's about how you practice. Modacity is the app that can help you put it all together. Tom and I both use this when we practice and with our students. Get organized, get focused, get Modacity. You can download the app on iTunes. We are also being brought to you by Pedal Train. If you're like me, you have lots of pedals. The only way to cart them around is with a pedal train case. You can get them in many different sizes with both hard cases and soft cases. Pedal train is the best way to bring your sound along. You can go to www.pedaltrain.com for more info. I want to thank my co-host Tom Semioli and, of course, Dave Swift, a special person that I have gotten to know over the past few weeks. I want to let you know that we have begun to archive our previous shows via our podcast, also titled Notes from an Artist. You can find all of them with any of the major podcast players or at our podcast website, notesfromanartist.buzzsprout.com. Next week, we will be on the air with our special guest, Snarky Puppy founder, Michael Lee. So tune in every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the next edition of Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Have a great week. Take care. 